0: Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest. He is a Dateline featured cold case detective, an author, a speaker. We're actually speaking on this uh, Stand to Reason uh, Reality Apologetics Youth Conference thing together, which has been really fun. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, an adjunct professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, my alma mater at Biola University. And also at Southern Evangelical Seminary, I don't know how he has time to even do this interview, but he's also the best-selling author of several books, including you've probably heard of Cold Case Christianity, which is amazing, and the, his latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Person of Interest: Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Welcome, Jay Warner Wallace.
1: Well, you know how I have time for this, Beckett, is because I do all those things really poorly. And that leaves me lots of time <laughs> to do anything else I want to do. So that's why good. I'm able to join you today. So that's good. I'm glad to be with you.
0: Good. I'm glad you're here. So uh, so person of interest, before we get into the book, which is mm-hmm. awesome. I just read it last week. Uh, I highly recommend it. And But tell us a little bit about... I mean, you get into this in cold case Christianity, but tell us just a little bit of your background and how you came to Christ through your detective work.
1: Yes, I was just um, not um, I was kind of raised in the arts. My dad was a cop, but I was interested in the arts. So I got a bachelor's degree in design. Then I got a master's degree in architecture. I was working in Santa Monica at a firm in Santa Monica, one of the best firms in the country. I was very happy there. But ultimately, you know, that the occupation of law enforcement does seem to be multi-generational. <laughs> if you've ever noticed, there's a lot of yeah. firemen are the same way. So it just kind of called me back. And I ended up becoming a, a police officer, then ultimately a detective. And all during that time, uh, my dad and I, my dad was never uh, anybody who, who it's always, he's always been a pretty committed atheist, but a relatively quiet atheist. I mean, we all knew he didn't want to go to church. Um, and I didn't want to go to church either. His, his second wife, he's been married twice. His second wife is Mormon and they would, they'd want to go to ward on Sundays. Well, dad and I would like, Hey, we're checking out of that. We're not going to go. So, so I was raised really in an environment in Los Angeles County where I just didn't know anybody who was a believer. I just didn't hang out with it and had no friends who ever invited me to church. So by the time I was about 35 and we had kids now, young kids, my wife was like, yeah, you know, should we like raise them up, um, like take pick, pick them to church. <laughs> which I thought was, was, I mean, we had been together 18 years at that time and we had never talked about any of that stuff. <laughs> so I thought, no, I mean, if you want to, I'm I, I will do anything Susie wants because Susie's been, she's an angel. So I will be happy to attend church as an atheist because my dad would do that too. He would do that today. So I I'm, I'm happy to do that. If that's what, what you want to do. Um, And so that's how she got me to go to church. Although I will tell you, I was, we were here in this neighborhood uh, for about three years and she had been wanting, and I skillfully avoided it. Uh, But then eventually one Saturday I said, look, if you want to go tomorrow, I'll be happy to go with you tomorrow. I figured she would pick a Catholic parish. I didn't know anything about denominationalism, anything about anything, but I knew that the closest church to us happened to be a parish. So I said, okay, um, I guess we're going there. Well, and we ended up going to a big, huge mega church. And, and we walked in and the pastor was clever enough to, he would, he was basically like a, um, an evangelist every weekend. It was very much, uh, he was very sensitive to the idea that there were unbelievers in that congregation, yeah. thousands every Sunday. So I was one of those. And he just said that Jesus was smart and he was important and he had, you know, some substantive life and impact on all this stuff that I just never really considered. But he made Jesus sound. He said a lot of other things I just ignored. But at least in that portion of what he was talking about, Jesus sounded like he might be a value to somebody who would selfishly like a uh, like a fortune cookie version of Christianity. Right. Just give me the wise sayings and I can sound like I'm smart. So I bought a Bible to see what was so smart about Jesus. Is he really the smartest man who ever lived? And that's how the whole thing started for me. But but when I'm assessing the claims, you know, everyone assesses the claims based on whatever skill set they have or whoever they are, what their background is. I was not recovering from alcoholism or, or having a crisis in my marriage or anything like that. I was just a guy who, who interviewed a lot of witnesses and, and knew how witnesses can lie to you and how, how to judge if they're being truthful. And so I just thought, I'm just going to test these gospels. And so I started to do that. But you know, every case I work, and I work cold cases, these are just unsolved murders. These cases are unsolved because they were lame to begin with and because the original detectives just didn't have enough information to be able to make a case. So I'm always looking for the stuff that's... Um, that's I'm trying to be creative uh, when I do my investigations. Like, like, um, what, where didn't you look? Like, what things did you consider? So I'm trying to think about what you didn't consider because that's the where I'm going to go start looking in these little creative niches and little nooks and crannies of this guy's life that'll tell me if he's involved in this murder. So, so I'm always considering not just the evidence of of, of eyewitnesses. I'm considering all the extra stuff that's out there, and so. What I did with Cold Case Christianity is talk about what's in the crime scene of the New Testament. What are the eyewitnesses in the Gospels? If they are eyewitnesses, what do they say about Jesus? But in person of interest, I'm doing that second thing where I'm ignoring the New Testament. I'm pretending as though it doesn't exist. What can we know about Jesus from all the other avenues of evidence that are in culture, even if every New Testament was destroyed?
0: Yeah. And so, and you talk about this in person of interest, you talk about this kind of methodology uh, called fuse and fallout. Right. It would t- tell us about what, what is fuse and fallout? And what yeah, I wish
1: mean? I had the, uh, I, I can find it. I've got it in my hard drive. I keep everything, right? So I have the, uh, the first time I ever used this strategy in front of a jury, it's been, you know, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago now, 20 years, something like that. Um, and I remember when I used it, I, I had a case. It was a nobody missing, a nobody murder. So this dude kills his wife. And I've had a couple Steve, of these. That's there. Steve and
0: Tammy, right?
1: Well, this is, yeah. I've heard oh, Tammy, yeah. Tammy in the book. I, I yeah. kind of recall one of these in the book to kind of walk you through what it looks yeah. like in a real murder. But I've had some really, um, <laughs> people are creative when they kill each other. I'm just telling you. You know, I was just <laughs> listening to a, Is it Gaffigan? What's, is it Jim Gaffigan, the, the comedian? He does this bit on Dateline. He talks about Dateline episodes, how you, you know, all these people, you swear that if, if, if you're a married couple, that all marriages end in murder, according to <laughs> Dateline, right? And it feels that way sometimes when you're working murders, like all these people are like happily married at some point, and then at some point, he's like digging a shallow grave in the backyard. And I'm thinking, okay, so there's something went wrong here, right? But, but so what you do is you're looking at cases where maybe he destroyed the body, uh, got rid of it in some way. It's never been recovered. Now, 30 years go by. We never took it originally as a murder case. It was reported as a missing person. I've got a case. It's not the Steve and Tammy Hayes case where this guy was so beloved by the victim's family that they refused to believe that their son-in-law could ever kill their daughter. And they didn't want to believe their daughter was dead. They would far rather believe that their daughter ran off in a huff and started a new life somewhere and and was still available to this might, might someday return. Than to believe that their beloved son-in-law, the only they had three daughters, they didn't have any boys. This guy was like a son to them. He even took over the family business as a son. This is the guy who killed their daughter. They don't want to believe it. So thirty years later, they had never called us to say, "Hey, is anybody working on our daughter's case? Anybody looking for her?" They didn't want anyone to look for. They were very comfortable with the idea that she had run off. Well, that just means you have thirty-year lag time you're behind the crime by 30 years and you've got no evidence in the crime scene so how do you make it to a a jury you simply tell them look on the day that she vanished if that was a murder and not just a missing then a a bomb went off and that bomb was explosive but all bombs are preceded by a fuse that burns toward the detonation of the bomb and after that explodes you got debris and shrapnel everywhere so ladies and gentlemen i'm going to demonstrate what happened and why this was a felony because i'm going to examine and show you the fuse and the fallout on the timeline. And that fuse and fallout are going to indicate what happened on the day she went missing. So, in a very similar way, if you were to ignore the New Testament and you had no data, no body, no evidence, no, nothing booked in the property room about Jesus, you, you ignore, pretend like every New Testament's now been destroyed. Well, it turns out you could examine the fuse and fallout of history to determine what happened in the first century. And that's what we try to do. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I think that the, the case for Jesus is so overwhelming, yeah. so unparalleled, so unexpected, that the best explanation for this kind of impact and for the fingerprints of Jesus to be this available to us even years later is that he was who he said he was. So that's what we're trying to do in this book is to actually make a case for the deity and historicity of Jesus by, by looking at the fuse and fallout of history.
0: Yeah. And by the way, I mean, Nicole Brown Simpson's murder is still out there somewhere and no one solved that crime. So we, we got to get on that. Exactly. But
1: um, <laughs> and I've had uh, Robert Shapiro on a case. It was a dateline case. So years later, after OJ was tried, Robert Shapiro picks up one of our clients. And uh, this was a case where he killed a woman. And it was uh, we were about it was 1979 case. I think we went to trial in 2014. Wow. So so it was a long distance between 79 and 14. And um, and Robert picked the case up. And so every day, of course, that brought a lot of attention. We had dateline in that in the jury in the uh, courtroom every day. Uh, but so, yeah, you're right. When you get someone like that, somebody who's skilled, somebody who understands how to how to evaluate and make inferences from evidence, it makes it a little more difficult. But here's the thing I, I think is so interesting about all these cases, in case, including the case for Jesus, is that it turns out that we often make cases with evidence that you might think, well, that's not evidence. Like, if we think of evidence in these very limited uh, ways, you know, if you don't have DNA, like you've got no real evidence that Jesus ever lived. Well, I'm not quite sure you understand what kind of evidence we use in criminal trials to, to, to make any kind of an inference. Like, what is real evidence, quote unquote? There's only two forms of evidence. There's direct evidence, which is eyewitness testimony and everything else, which is called indirect evidence. That includes DNA. That includes fingerprints. That includes all the forensic stuff. That's called indirect evidence. The other word for that is circumstantial evidence. And we make cases entirely circumstantially. All my cases are because look, if I had an eyewitness 30 years ago, then we got solved 30 years ago. I don't have an eyewitness, and that's why it's cold. So I'm working entirely circumstantial cases. They are very powerful. We've never lost a case. And every time we get a case and we get a conviction, at some point, that guy confesses. And so we know we have the right guy, and we make the cases circumstantial. There's enough circumstantial evidence to demonstrate that Jesus lived, and he was who he said he was, because everything counts as evidence. And that's what we're trying to do in this book.
0: Well, some of the fallout you talk about, or let's get into some of the fallout yeah. of the, the fuse, the long fuse. Um, so how was the Roman Empire, you talk about the Roman Empire, how it was particularly conducive to Jesus's ministry and the spread of the gospel. So kind of Jesus was born at the kind of exact, the kind of a perfect time in history
1: yeah yeah talk the about fullness that a little of bit. time that, that paul talks about in galatians that jesus that god sends his son in the fullness of time or at the at the time of of, of, of the most perfect time uh, well this is a good question i always had um and, and susie had this question too when we were first looking at christianity you know like like isn't it interesting like why would it be why why jesus um why the time and why why that kind of guy why that time in history like why wouldn't god like want to come to us once we have the internet? Why wouldn't God want to come to us once we have all this high technology? You know, so that's a good question. I think a lot of people think and ask that question, but it turns out that there is something so favorable to the first. Now, listen, it wasn't called the first century. Then we're calling it the first century now, but why are we calling it the first century when in fact it was never the first century, right? We call it that, but it's not the first century in which humans lived or recorded history. Well, something happens there, but it turns out that the timing of this is so um, dependent on other issues, like the Roman Empire. I'll give you an example of this. Really, until you have the technology to communicate effectively what Jesus said and did, it's going to be hard to tell the story of Jesus. So for example, if all you have were Egyptian um, pictographs, or cuneiforms, or other forms of primitive alphabet you could probably get some basic um, uh, description of Jesus, but it'd be hard to to, to communicate the, the intricacies, for example, of the Sermon on the Mount with just pictographs. So you really have to wait until you have an alphabet. And there were several uh, pre- um, early alphabets, a Persian alphabet, Phoenician alphabet. But when you get to the Etruscan alphabet, this alphabet is replete with a number of vowels and consonants that can give you some detail. And it ends up being adopted on the Italian peninsula by this city state known as Rome that eventually becomes the Roman empire and spreads the use of the Etruscan alphabet entire around the, the entire known world around the Mediterranean at the time in a much broader expanse than the Hebrews could, could then the Jews could spread Hebrew than the Persians could spread their alphabet. Now the Roman empire can spread that alphabet and they're using papyrus instead of clay, instead of stone. So this stuff travels now and they are building roads and infrastructure. Why? Because they end up conquering the region, and there's a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana, in which resources can now be shifted into things like roads. And by the way, they're building these roads to prepare for the next war. So they're building roads that are as straight as they can be, so that their military machines can move down these roads. And that means they're going to go through things rather than around things. So now you have the un- unprecedented construction of tunnels and bridges, so these straight Great roads, and pretty much that expression, every road leads to Rome, was happening. And that's why roads like the roads that Paul uses to get into the Ephesian, to, the, to Ephesus, and to other areas around Ephesus, really aren't even available to Paul just a couple of hundred years earlier. But they end up being constructed during the Roman Empire, opening up a window during the Pax Romana in which a message, any message, but particularly the message about Jesus, now has feet. And the, uh, the a period of peace in which to, to the message could travel, and that's one of the several fuses that actually opens up a window of opportunity that allows the message of Jesus to do what it did so easily and so quickly in the first century, which was to multiply at a you know an unbelievably unexpected pace.
0: Yeah, and the, I mean the fact that the the Alexander the Great would preceded Jesus by a few centuries, and that whole part of the world was Hellenized and the common you know koine greek was the language yes. the lingua franca like that that is just uh, extraordinary too that that just happened exactly. to be at the ex- exact time of jesus
1: and, and people sometimes say to me back at, well look look the the, the the jews had hebrew and that was that was certainly um expressive enough and robust enough to communicate concepts in the old testament so what you don't really need the etruscan alphabet yeah it's not so much about the the, the ability of the language, that's part of it, the ability of the language and the alphabet to communicate complex ideas. It's also, though, what is the reach of the alphabet and the system? The reach under the Jews using Hebrew is nothing like the reach the Romans had with the Etruscan alphabet. So now when you're able to communicate at that level, using uh, according to Greek, using the Etruscan alphabet, you actually can, can take a message. And, and it's available now to a much larger group at a much larger pace, faster pace.
0: Yeah. And skeptics often point to uh, where I want to talk about the the kind of the similar narratives of deities in antiquity and skeptics point to those narratives as kind of a way to discount Jesus and, and just claim that, that Jesus's uh, story is a myth and it's yeah. an ancient myth like any other one. But how does this argument fail?
1: Well, it's actually an argument for the, the deity of Christ rather than against the deity. Here's how I see it. Um, yes, are there similarities between ancient mythologies? Forget about Jesus for a second. If you just looked at every ancient mythology prior to the first century, you read them all, you'll find that they are not, they're pretty, con- they have a lot of commonalities between ancient mythologies, even. The ancient mythologies that are separated impassably by large bodies of water. So, for example, in the South American continent, the deities that are mentioned there share some similarities with the deities of Egypt, the deities of Persia. How can this be when they're separated by people groups who don't don't have an easy connect to one another? It's not like you've just got one empire uh, that, that, that consumes another and adopts its gods. No, it turns out that ancient mythologies, regardless of where they are on the planet, share similarities as a matter of fact as i read through all those ancient mythologies i identified 15 similarities that these ancient myths have with one another some are very very obvious and simple so like for example all ancient deities can work miracles <laughs> well, like duh. Okay. If your God doesn't do God things, he's probably not God. So it's not unsurprising <laughs> to me that, yeah. the, that the gods do God things, but they also will appear miraculously in one fashion or another. Now how they appear is very different, but they all appear on the scene in some unexpected supernatural way. They're um, you know, birthed out of the hip of another God. They are, they emerge from the side of a mountain. There's always some supernatural way. Now, look, in the end, if you look at those 15 similarities, These are just the common expectations anyone would have if they're thinking, like the minds of poets and dreamers and and, and novelists, people who write. We all, even today, think about, if we think about God and we ignore, we don't know anything about Christianity, we will still have some attributes of God that even match the attributes of ancient myths. Because our expectations as humans created in the image of God are very similar to the other expectations of humans created in the image of God. Now, when you compare these similarities to one another, none of them possess more than about 10. Some have as few as six similarities, but they're there. Those those 15, I see them over and over and over again. And take it to Jesus. And then in Jesus, I see that all 15 attributes exist in a way that they don't exist in any other single mythology. And that's interesting to me, because if you intended to meet the expectations of people who are anticipating and thinking and imagining the existence of God. Jesus does that. Regardless of which God you were worshiping prior to Jesus, Jesus takes those expectations and amps them up one level. As a matter of fact, he possesses the common divine attributes of myths, yet none of the, um, um, how shall I say, corrupt human debaucherous attributes, because a lot of these myths are just debaucherous characters, are always drunk, always cheating, always chasing women, always killing people they don't like. I mean, all the bad things about humans are present in some of those myths. None of that's present in Jesus. He possesses the common expectations that are divine, yet doesn't have any of the baggage of human nature. There's some, so why would God do it this way? Why would God come and meet the expectations of ancients in that category. By the way, he also meets the expectations of the Jews because if you look at the archetypes of Jewish patriarchs, mm-hmm. Moses, Jonah, you go to all of Joseph, they, sound, they, they actually have a rough outline that's very similar to the outline of Jesus. Right. And this has been compared as archetypes, predecessors of the Jesus story. Well, why would God do this? Because when the expector meets the expectations of the expected, you get a much better response. This is true for all of us, right? If you have a restaurant down the street, we're just talking about restaurants before we started this, and, and you expect it to be fantastic, and you get there, and it's not so great. It's okay. It's not so great. Well, you're disappointed now. So you, when the expectations meet your expectation, when the expected meets what you thought as the expector it was going to be, the response is really good. You're going to go back. You're going to tell your friends about it. Yeah. Well, this is what happens in the person of Jesus, is that he meets the expectation. Now, if you compare the details... You're not going to find a story like Jesus on the pages of any ancient myth. You aren't. You're not going to find uh, that he comes exactly the same way, that he works, does exactly the same thing. You're not going to find that. But in a broad outline, he does meet the common expectations of the ancients. That's not an evidence against his deity. That's actually an evidence for his deity. This is what Paul talks about in Acts 17. Hey, you people in Athens, you're very religious. You worship a lot of things. You even have this one monument here to an unknown god. Okay, you're wrong about all of them. Let me let me tell you. We, we actually saw him. He rose from the grave and proved he was God. Let me tell you. You have poets who are, you know have certain expectations. Well, I want to tell you the truth about God because we saw it with our own eyes. That is, in essence, what he does. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way: that the ancient myths are simply the myths that come from the minds of men, poets, writers, dreamers, whereas Jesus is the myth that comes from the mind of God grounded in what we call real things. So the myth like he uses it is not that myth is a, a lie or a falsehood, but myth is simply a description of deity. And this is what you see in the person of Jesus. So I, I actually think that's one of the, by the way, if you wanted to show up on the planet at the time when the most ancients were still actively worshiping their myths well, there's a window of opportunity there too. It's much broader than the Pax Romana. But if you overlap it, you'll see, you got to show up. If you show up in the first century, you actually show up when most people were still, by the way, remember a lot of these ancient myths, like Osiris, once you get into the common era, people aren't worshiping Osiris anymore. But right. if you wanted to show up when they were, and you could leverage any common expectation, you got to show up early in history, brought around the first century.
0: And speaking of the, uh, the common era, you know, you get into this in the book about, in the in the chapter in the fullness of time, how Jesus disrupts a lot of things and has an enormous including our calendar, which yeah. maybe you can talk about, but we also but you also talk about how he has an enormous influence on art, architecture, music, movies. Yes. And we kind yeah. of, you know, as moderns, we're we're kind of, we kind of sort of forget about how much influence he has and has had over the past 2000 years on all these things. So give us a, give us a few examples of the impact his life had has had on our culture.
1: Well, one of the things I did in the book, you know, it's, it's fully illustrated. So it's hard, right? When we talk about the fullness of time, and I'm talking about that window in the timeline in which God, which God can appear as Jesus in the fullness of time and have this huge impact. Well, you got to kind of see it, right, visually. That's why I have over 400 illustrations in the book. So we're trying to put into words right now, which is best described visually. But, <laughs> but it turns out that, that, that the impact, of, as an atheist, the things that mattered to me most before I became a believer were art, music, literature, education and science. Those are the things that are my highest values, the things I, I most wanted to pursue in my education. And the things I I worked in, you know, in the arts and, you know, architecture is much as much an engineering job sometimes as it is an art job. Mm -hmm. So the sciences are there. So, So I really feel like that was my passion. But it turns out if those are the interests of any atheist who's listening, well, those five aspects of human culture are so deeply indebted to Jesus and his followers that we have a tendency to take it for granted. As a matter of fact, if you were to search for the history of music and the history of art, much of the Christian identity of those players has probably been removed. So, uh, for example, in the sciences, it was the Christian worldview that actually opened up a new way of thinking about the natural world in the first century that catalyzed the advances of the sciences. If you look at the chart of when science occurs and when scientists start doing moving from natural philosophy to the hard sciences, observable sciences, you'll see that this all happens after the appearance of Jesus in history, not before. And the scientific revolution is dominated. I mean, ridiculously dominated by Christians in Europe. Now you could say, well, yeah, everyone in Europe was a Christian in those centuries. Uh, Yeah, but there were a lot more people outside of Europe that were not Christian. Why didn't science explode over there? It exploded in that one part of the world that we happen to call Christendom in Europe, which happened to be in Europe, but it would have been anywhere that Christ followers were in groups because it turns out that Christ followers held a worldview that number one was a teaching worldview. And I think about that for a second. Jesus doesn't say, hey, go out and convert people. No, he says, go out and make disciples. Really? And teach them all that I have taught you. Really? So what you're saying basically is create a structure, a worldview, which is dominated by education because I'm gonna have to teach people. And a lot of these people can't even read. But you want the people of the book, but now I gotta gotta teach them how to read. Oh, they don't have a lettering system. Oh, I gotta create an alphabet so that I can teach them how to read so that I can teach them everything you said. So I can create disciples. Do you see the problem? they initiated a worldview that had a high emphasis on education. And it was from that that the modern universities emerged and from the modern universities emerged the people who eventually led the scientific revolution. All of these things are connected. And what's so interesting is, is that it's not just that more Christians have fathered and initiated and founded, major modern scientific disciplines than all the other groups combined. It's not just that. It's not just that more schools, modern universities have been founded by Christ followers than all the other groups combined. That's true, but that's not just that. It's that from the campuses of those universities, if you visit their buildings, they they love to keep ancient buildings on those campuses. What you're going to find are the images, scriptures, etchings, uh, stained glass, depicting the life Mm -hmm. and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus, and I do this in one chapter in the book, just from the campuses of the top 15 universities in the world. Not the top 15 Christian universities. These are the top 15 universities, period. Now, they were founded by Christians, and for the most part, they probably don't even acknowledge Jesus anymore, but there are still the top 15 universities, 75 of the top 100 universities in the world today were founded by Christians. And in the sciences, those same scientists who fathered these major disciplines from modern chemistry, modern astronomy, all the way to quantum mechanics and, and computer sciences, those were Christ followers who wrote deeply about their love of Jesus. And from their personal journals, you can learn more about Jesus than you can from the personal journals of the Antonicene church fathers. You can learn more from the science fathers than you can from the church fathers. That's how you can reconstruct the story of Jesus. Even if every New Testament was destroyed, you reconstruct it in crazy, unexpected places. The history of literature, the history of music, the history of art, the history of education, the history of science. It's worse than that. Even non-Christian religions, hat tip Jesus. They have to mention him in some way. They include him in some way. Even the religions that preceded Jesus, once they got into the common era, they started to include Jesus. You're going now, to. I hard know hard you talk about find. in the book.
0: You talk yeah. about in the book how they had to kind of modify their texts and tenets. To you know, include Jesus and to like, yeah. what, like give us a, a couple of examples of religions. To well, uh, if you're a that.
1: Buddhist today, a Buddhist mm-hmm. will tell you that there's a place for Jesus within that system. They see him as a man and enlightened teacher on the way to Buddhism, on the way to Buddhahood. So you'll see that he is actually included and revered by Buddhist leaders who will speak not only glowingly of Jesus and give him a position within the kind of um, structure of Buddhism, but they also will re- repeat elements of his stories. You will see them talk about episodes from the Gospels. If all you had was the teaching of the world's leaders of Buddhism today, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus a thousand years from now from the lips of Buddhists. This is also true, of course, for Hindus. Now, not every Hindu and Buddhist think believe the exact same thing. It's very hard to kind of pin down, for example, Hindus to say, what is the one over? But the leaders of Hinduism see Jesus in a very noble way. Right. And that's why they are inclined to include him. If Hinduism is true, in essence, there's a place for Jesus within Hinduism. If Buddhism is true, for example, there's a place for Jesus within Buddhism. On the other hand, these two systems preceded Jesus. But Jesus says, nah, I'm the light. I'm the way, the truth, the light. No one gets to the Father except through me. He does not make room for anything else that preceded him. Yet everything that precedes him eventually makes room for him. And that, to me, is very telling, right? If you are a spiritual seeker, you probably should start with Jesus because everybody else has got him in there, You right. also think about him too
0: right and i we you, we kind of touched on this Jesus versus science a, a bit ago, but um I wanted to just ask you because i don 't know I, it was like four or five years ago I went to my high school reunion in Dallas, and um i i told i mean I told everyone at the reunion about my conversion to Christianity. They were kind of shocked. But um I I spoke with one friend in particular, his name is Chase. And uh he's a he's a USC grad, so he's your competitor. That's right. Uh, that's he's that's a he's a You're a bruin. But um yes. But Chase, I I told Chase my whole story, and I said, uh, you know, I told him my whole testimony, what you know, how he met Jesus and everything. And his response to me was, Beckett. I'm a science guy. So tell, tell I mean, we, you, talk, you touched on this earlier, but like, what would you say to Chase about that statement? I'm a science guy.
1: Well, I, I am too. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I didn't <laughs> abandon that when I became a Christ follower. Um, and it turns out that every major scientist who has founded the, the disciplines that we would say, for science guys, we would say, well, we yeah, we love the sciences. Most of those sciences we say we love were heavily indebted to Christians who founded those disciplines, most of which occurred during the scientific revolution. That's not our term. That's not a Christian term. That's the secular term for that period of time, was 200 years in which the vast majority of modern scientific disciplines were founded. Well, those are Christ followers. They didn't abandon their view of, of Jesus or of the miraculous in order to examine the natural world. They didn't. There was the subtle no distinction between. They just didn't see this as like well, I can't. I have to believe one or the other. No, that was never. That's not the case today for scientists. Some of the best scientists in the world who are believers. Forget about Christians or even just theists in general. So it turns out that you don't have to turn off your mind. But it, it was, we're all doing the same thing. It's not science. Doesn't say anything. Scientists do. The right. science is a collection of data. Scientists interpret the data and offer an inference. But it turns out that that process of inferring brings with it a lot of other baggage. It's my presuppositions, it's my likes and dislikes, it's my personal background, it's, what, it's what my biases, it's whatever I'm committed to. So I, for example, wrote a book called God's Crime Scene where I simply use the science to demonstrate the existence of God based on eight features of the universe. The beginning of the universe, the fine tuning of the universe, the appearance of life in the universe, the appearance of design in biology, uh, consciousness, free agency, objective moral truths, and the problem of evil. Those eight things, You can examine them from a scientific perspective, but in the end, I'm using the same science that somebody else would use and infer, well, no, I think there's a naturalistic explanation. Really, I think the better explanation is intelligent interaction for the DNA we see, for example, in in our our genetic code. You know, I always put this way when someone says I'm the science. Okay, using the science, if you walked into a crime scene and you had a scene, a death scene, and you had a dead body on the floor, you're not sure how he died, but there is some blood spatter on the wall. That blood spatter is really a matter of inference, right? Because it turns out I don't need a killer in order to get that blood spatter. If I fell a certain way, I might have hit my head. And then the chemistry of blood, the physics of that movement of the droplets would cause the blood spatter on the wall. It could all be a matter of space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. No murder involved. I just fell wrong. On the other hand, if I walked in that room and I saw on the wall, he deserved it written in his own blood. I'm looking for a suspect now. Why? Because I know that space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry is an insufficient explanation for information. Once I see information on the wall, I know the best explanation is a mind. Well, we have information in the DNA. The science demonstrates that. So you really think you can get that with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry? It's like blood spatter. Good luck with that. If you think you can get that, that burden's on you. Everything in my experience and in your experience tells us that information is tied to intelligence, a mind. If you think you can get it without intelligence, without a mind, that's not my burden. I know I can get it with intelligence. I know I can get a suspect to write that. If you think you can get that by falling and just having physics do it, that burden is on you. It turns out the science actually helps us. It doesn't hurt us as theists. It demonstrates there's something beyond space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. But I think we have to be prepared, Beckett, to have those kinds of deeper conversations. Look, did I know when I became a Christian, I'd have to know a bunch of other stuff in order to defend what I believe? I I think it's easier for me coming in at 35 because I had to wrestle with these ideas before I became a Christian. Isn't it interesting that you grew up in Dallas, an area of the country which is deeply Christian and has a rich history of church attendance? I got family two hours east of Dallas. So, uh, just heading toward a uh, little toward um, toward um, well, Mount Pleasant. It's just it's east yeah. of Dallas, about two hours. So, so I know that area pretty well. But isn't it interesting that you grew up there, yet had to come to this godless place called Los Angeles <laughs> I in know. order to meet Jesus? <laughs> Who but knew? Who would have about. ever
0: guessed that? Like, move yeah, to LA just, to find so, Jesus.
1: Exactly. If he was right there the whole time, by the way, you could have you know, probably, there's a lot of people in, in Dallas who would probably tell you about Jesus, okay? But what's interesting is because you went through your life to find Jesus the way that you found him, you hold him in a way that's different than even your believing friends in Dallas mm-hmm. He may have always believed in Jesus. They may not have a memory of not believing in Jesus. But you hold him as more precious because your struggle to get to him was more significant. Mine yeah, too. it's like the treasure in the field. It's like, That's yeah. right. That's it's right. Because I came to this late. It's like I'm still geeked out about talking about Jesus. I, when I write these books, I don't really have anybody in mind. Like, I'm not not one of those authors who's smart enough to say, who's my audience? I'm going to write to my audience so I can sell a bunch (laughs) of books. For me, it's like this is just what the life as a Christian looks like. And once you became, once I became, I was a Cowboys fan growing up because my family's in Dallas. And once you become a Cowboys fan, you're just a geek down on the Cowboys. Uh, Packers fans, for example, I used to do Packers chapels. These guys travel. Packers fans are rabid. They can tell you the entire history of the Packers. They'll sit in that Lambeau field, which is one of the worst stadiums in America. I'm going to get a lot of pushback for saying this. It is an uncomfortable stadium compared to SoFi. But they would yeah. much rather be in, 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 in Lambeau than in SoFi because that is that they're geeked out on it. They travel. They talk about it, They wear the green and gold. They, it's unbelievable. Well, that's how I feel about Jesus right now because I came to this late. And the journey to get here is unexpected. Same is true for you. I think you're actually in a much better position than people who have taken this whole thing for granted. Yeah. We kind of became fans. We're not fans, we're more than that, of course. But you know, like get my yeah. point is we became interested later. Later. And that's why I can't wait to tell the world about
0: it. I know. That's why it's, yeah. And before I get to the last question, you mentioned blood spatter. I just, what your, this is kind of totally random. <laughs> Did you ever see the the documentary the staircase on Netflix? Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. Did he do yeah, it or absolutely. did he not
0: do it? Yes or no?
1: Well, okay. So I uh, <laughs> think month, he did it. I don't believe that there's was it the eagle or the raven or whatever the other the bird that, that you know, all the different things they no, I think look, in the end, uh, keep it simple, stupid. It's almost always the simplest explanation that is still the best explanation. It's 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 not to say that that bizarre things don't happen. Of course they do. But, but, and also remember that a blood spatter is, it is, uh, it's a physical process that cu- causes the blood, but reading blood spatter is got some art in addition to the science I and mean, we're making some inferences that are, are, um, so I did a whole class in, in, in blood spatter when I was working, first came on the homicide team and we just went to Sacramento and we got things that were, uh, we saturated things with blood, real human blood, and we would smack them to see where the cast off goes you know if i hit this thing and then i hit it again at some point i'm going to see a line of spatter on the ceiling that'll give me the position in which he's standing but it's still interpretive there may be some other way to cause that but i so a lot of this is still there's it's not like a science that like dna matching right so there's part of the blood spatter it's just to me it's, an, it's a part of a larger set of circumstantial evidence is cumulatively that we use to draw an inference. But I think there is some uh, level of interpretation that uh, leaves a room for error. So Mr. Peterson
0: is out. guilty, I guess.
1: Um, yes. I think, okay. uh, for, for the most part, you know this, Beckett. If you ask me, is <laughs> so-and-so guilty? Yes. What case am I talking about? Don't care. He's guilty. <laughs> that, you know, <laughs>
0: exactly. Of,
1: you know, that's what the detective is going to start. I start off assuming everyone in the room is guilty until I figure out which one of you is. Right. Everyone's a liar until I figure out which one of them isn't. Right. So, well,
0: let's close with this question. So I, you know, I call this the Oprah effect that all religions lead to God. Explain, just talk about how that's
1: impossible. Well, okay. So will all instructions lead to my house? If I invite you over for Christmas, will all instructions lead you here? What if I give you the instructions to get you to the exact same address, but the only thing that's different is the word for the street is only one letter difference. It happens to exist, but it's not my street. That it's it's, hey, it's 90% correct. It's just that 10% of the word is not right. Do you get to my house for Christmas? No, you end up in somebody else's house for Christmas. So it turns out what we're saying, is there a particular path that gets you to a particular place? And we already know that not now, you could argue that all sets of directions, I might give you several different kinds of directions to get to my house, but the question is, Okay, then what if I gave you, you're trying to visit Jim Wallace, but not this Jim Wallace. He's a different Jim Wallace. Same name. His middle name's even Warner. And he lives in the same city as me, but he's not this Jim Warner Wallace. So if I can give you directions to his house, but it turns out you need to know who is, who's the Jim Warner Wallace you're actually going to go visit on Christmas. And then you need directions on how to get to him. And although your set of directions to get to Jesus is different than mine was, we both had the same Jesus in mind. So, you know, the Muslims believe in a Jesus, but he's not the son of God, not God incarnate who died on a cross and rose from the grave. The name is the same, but he's substantively different. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to go to James Warner Wallace's house, but get the wrong James Warner
0: Wallace.
1: Right. Okay. Same thing is true with Mormonism. You know, it's in the name of our church, Jesus. Yeah, but the problem is, is that by description, he isn't the guy who was born when I was born. You know, in other words, if you want to get to my house, the features of the person you are expecting to see need to match the reality of the person who lives in the house. And this is right. what we, we, the problem with, with God. If we have got a notion of who God is, well, whose notion of God is accurate? And, and, and by the way, these all contradict each other. So they would agree that not every road gets you to, to Allah either. That they would, everyone agrees in the exclusivity of their particular view, even if their view is that nothing is exclusive, well, they hold exclusively to the idea that nothing's exclusive. Right. So, so again, you cannot avoid the nature, the kind of uh, nature of truth, that, that train that's running down the track that you can either deny exists or it's, it's going to run you over if you stand on the tracks. So the truth of, of, of these claims, uh, they all contradict one another. They could all be wrong. Or one could be right and the rest are wrong, but they cannot all be right because they make opposing claims. They make contradictory claims. So all the best you can hope for is they're all wrong, or that maybe one is right, but you can't argue they're all right because they all contradict each other.
0: And as you said, I mean Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to God is through, is me. through me." So that's it's right. either that's either true or it's not true. So you, you right. can't you can't just say all roads.
1: And I'm crazy enough to believe that I ought to listen to people who rise from the grave. So so it all comes down to whether or not Jesus is the risen Lord. If he is, he's got an authority that's different than anyone else, because the only person who did that was Jesus of Nazareth.
0: Yeah. Well, let's leave it at that. I love your zeal for Jesus of Nazareth, for Christ and your desire for. I mean, you really I love it because I feel the same way. Your desire. To, for everyone to know him, they, I mean we just that, because we did get saved late in life, yeah later in life we 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 just want everyone to know him, and yeah. so guys, the book is a person of interest, and uh this is a great christmas gift for a great ch- Christmas gift for not only Christians to encourage their faith and to uh just strengthen their faith, but it 's also a great gift to buy for your agnostic or atheist friends because I I mean, honestly, Jim, if I had had like, you know, when I was living as an atheist for so many years, if I had had access, if I had read these books by you, there's really nowhere else to go after you. I mean, you just, you're kind of stuck. You either have to believe or you just have to deny the reality. You have to deny reality. So thank you for writing these books. and, uh, And yeah, thank you for being on the show.
1: Well, Beckett, one of the greatest joys this year in doing reality was getting a chance to work with you. So we're only halfway through. We've done three of the six. So I'm just grateful that we get to do three more. So I'm looking yeah, forward we're to Yeah, go, we're going
0: to uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Augusta. Yes. Why and... are we going
1: to Pennsylvania? I don't know. Who, who's <laughs> in <laughs> Pennsylvania you want to even talk to for crying up? No, I'm only kidding. But
0: thank you and uh, have a great Christmas. And I'll yeah, see you, I'll see you in uh, February. Yeah.
1: Merry Christmas, brother. Merry Appreciate Christmas. Thanks. Thanks, Jim.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com.